Hello, everybody, and welcome to season three, episode three of the Charlie Chats Footy podcast with myself, Charlie Casson. Thank you to everybody that's tuned in this series. Much appreciated. Um, obviously, you know, like I keep saying, I wouldn't be doing these episodes if no one was listening. So, yeah, thank you very much. And it's um, it's a pleasure to carry on doing them. So I hope you will enjoy it. I can't believe I'm saying this, but um, if you didn't know already, this week's guest is commentating legend Clive Tildesley. Um, absolute honour to have him on. Very surreal chatting with him. Clive Tildesley was ITV's lead commentator since 1998, all the way up until this this summer, just gone. Um, he led the ITV team to numerous World Cups, loads of European Championships. He was the lead commentator for 17 Champions League finals uh, and nine FA Cup finals for ITV as well, to add to that list. He is, you know, the word legend is overused quite a lot, but... Um, it's safe to say he is a legend. He is the voice of football, especially for you know my age demographic and us us lot growing up. It was Clive Tildesley, those ITV nights under the lights, Champions League, old school, like the, the the good old days. It was Clive Tildesley's voice. He's got such an iconic voice and brings back so many memories for all of us, I'm sure. Um, so yeah, it was an absolute honour and pleasure to have him on and... Um, yeah, I still can't quite believe that I'm introducing you to him on the pod, to be fair. But um, yeah, in this episode, we chat about Clive's earliest memories, um, growing up as a kid, how he got into commentating. We talk about that career-defining moment in 1999, Barcelona, Champions League final, United v Munich. We talk about him being replaced by Sam Matterface as the lead commentator on ITV. We answer your tweets and questions. And of course, I asked Clive who he would play in a biopic of their life. Any footballer, past or present, on the big screen, who would he play and why? So yeah, I really enjoyed this episode. I hope you do too. Um, it's a good one. Big thanks to Clive again for coming on. Um, so yeah, sit back, relax, enjoy. This is season three, episode three of the Charlie Chats Footy podcast with Clive Tilsley. Enjoy. always take it back um Clive right to, right to the beginning we start uh, from where it all sort of kicked off uh, so was first and foremost football a big part of your life growing up I um I came home from the hospital um to the house which was semi-detached to the manager of Berry Football Club um his wife went with my mum to the hospital for my delivery so um, I grew up um, with Uncle Dave. Dave Russell was the manager of Berry, as as my favourite, kindly um, adopted relation. Um, and actually, I I um, I wrote a, a book last year, um, which, if anybody is interested in me, or more importantly, really in communication. Um, most of my thoughts are contained in in that book, and it's not really autobiographical. It's uh, it's more about the extraordinary people that I've been privileged to get close to, and what I've learned about not just football but but life mm. um, from being around them. Um, and I make the distinction between being inside track and outside track. And in many ways, the the greatest challenge for a journalist 
or a broadcaster, because you are kind of welcomed you know, through the doors into the dressing room corridor. You do see football from the inside. It's to still communicate, connect with the people who never get there. Um, you know, that what's the job of the commentator? That really is the job of the commentator. And you do have a slightly different approach to football when you've seen it from the inside. When you've been to weddings and funerals of people who earn their living from professional football, for whom the W or the L it was really the definition of their day or, or of their week. Mm. And I think you actually have to be careful as a communicator, not to broadcast or write about football specifically from the inside, because I think you then you know, lose your connection with people who want to be where you where you go, but can never be. Our job, we're, we're the messengers. We're the ones who are allowed in there and come back and tell the rest of you, rest mm. of us, what it's like in there. So I was on the inside in, in many ways from, from day one, which I think was a plus, but it, it, it is, I think, a, a, a massive slice of food for thought when you're trying to communicate to people who don't come home from the hospital to live next door to the manager of one of the 92 professional football clubs in England. <laughs> yeah. So when, when was it then? You, when, when did you realise? 1837. <laughs> 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 yeah. Was, was no, there a... no, obviously, we didn't have electricity or anything like that. Um, and uh, no, um, I, I was never good enough to play professional sport for a living. Never. Um, Mainly because, or not mainly because, partly because I'm a wuss. I don't <laughs> like getting hurt. I've never broken a bone in my body in my entire life, and I'm 150 years old. <laughs> Have I got that far? Because I don't go into dangerous situations. As a sportsman or woman, you have to put your body on the line, and I wasn't prepared to do that. I actually um, I went to a boarding school in secondary education. Well, it wasn't a boarding school. It was a boarding house in, in a school, in a grammar school there aren't too many grammar schools left but it was a good education but it was a tough time to be a boarder um you know corporal punishment was very much in vogue you didn't have to do much to finish up getting somebody's training shoe wrapped across your backside and so on and so forth and in a boarding house of 50 guys it was a it was an all-male school um there were two choices really for the juniors you've got to be able to fight your corner or you've got to be able to talk your corner I couldn't fight. I've never been in a fight in my life. Um, but I, I learned to talk my way um, into a position where I, you know, could could survive and, and then sort of prosper in that uh, environment. And so um, an, an industry of business profession in which I could get by by just spouting a load of nonsense um, was, was always going to be the ambition. And even though there were very few... Um, media courses around in the uh, in the British further education system. Um, I, I'll tell you exactly what it was. I went to university in, uh, oh, uh, 1975, gosh. Um, Nottingham. Uh, Nottingham, yeah. I think, yeah. There were f I think there were four further education courses in the entire country, which were media-based. And now there are four at every university, or at least four at every university. And some of them are... are very vocational. I mean, um, 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 young men and women come out of not not just with a degree out of those courses, but with a lot of experience of 
of writing or broadcasting or wh wh whatever it is. And they're pretty much, I hate this prime minister with vengeance, but uh, to use his phrase, they're pretty much oven ready. They're, they're kind of ready to, to work. Mm. And that, of course, wasn't an option for me um, back in the day. I couldn't get on any of those courses. That wasn't good enough. <laughs> um, so, um, I, but I knew I had that ambition from, I don't know, a mid-teens. Mid that, that, that's all I really wanted to do. And you found your way onto Radio Trent, didn't you, with Nottingham Forest? Was that right? Yeah. I mean, um, when I was your age, um, <laughs> the, the, um, a, lot, a lot of the radio that we like, obviously um, media content is uh, consumed in a totally different way now than it was when I was a kid. Um, but radio was a big influence on our lives, particularly on, on the, the the music that shaped our lives, the, the you know the popular music, the rock music, whatever the the dance music that we listened to, mm. and um, in the, in that era, the there were a, a number of and it's quite interesting sort of subject to to research if if you're into kind of music content, the pirate radio stations, and these were quite literally a couple of them based on ships out in the North Sea because uh, they were illegal. Uh, they weren't licensed, but they were playing just this great music, which you could tune into on a crackly radio f for nothing at night um, by you know weird bands that we'd never heard of, American bands, black mm. bands, bands you know that were kind of almost from a different planet um, in 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 our in our sort of closeted closeted little worlds. Um, and eventually, the government of the day um, decided to. Uh, crack down on the pirate radio. It's quite apart from anything else. The artists were getting no, no you know, no rec recompense for the wonderful music that they were creating, uh, because they weren't paying um, any of the the fees that that um, you know that were due to, to mainstream radio at that time. Yeah. So, um, in in their wake, the government agreed to create uh, um, a network of local radio stations to to provide competition to the BBC local stations that were established in all the major cities of the UK. Um, and some of them are, are still very vibrant today. The likes of Capital Radio was very much from that era. LBC was very much from that era. And then further afield, Clyde and um, mm -hmm. Piccadilly in Manchester, BRMB in, in Birmingham. And, and Tr Radio Trent was the second tranche of um, radio stations that uh, came on air. One of the most famous DJs of the pirate um, era, a, a guy used to work on Radio Luxembourg called Kid Jensen, David Kid Jensen, who's a big Palace fan, um, came a Canadian guy came to work at Radio Trent. You know, I worked with with uh, with Kid Jensen in those uh, in those early years. I actually started with my own late night rock show. Would you believe before I did any football? <laughs> first three four months, ten p.m. to two a.m playing Led Zeppelin and uh, <laughs> Cream. Yeah, you, you really have to look these bands up, guys. Um, so uh, it, that was, that. It, I mean, it was just the dream job. And the fact that it was a brand new radio station, with a, I, I, that's the only reason I got the job. They took on three T-boys, two T-boys and a T-girl, just you know, completely unqualified people who just were showing up. Uh, an enthusiasm and an aptitude to want to be part of a radio station. And you did a little bit of everything. You did a little bit of, you read some some uh, um, news inserts, say you did the music, you you produced programs, and you got to go out and cover some football matches. And um, I, I mean, they, they knew and I knew that that was what I really wanted to do. And um, within a few months, they uh, the, the, 
two major clubs in Nottingham needed a correspondent each. And the sports editor, the guy who'd been uh, originally appointed, was a big Notts County fan. So he wanted to do Notts County. So I took and Notts County finished above Nottingham Forest in my first season. They were in the championship together. Well, that had been 70, 70... Uh, 75. So, um, uh, and then, of course, Peter Taylor came to join Brian Clough. Yeah at the city ground i mean martin o'neill was my first close friend in football remains one of my closest friends to this day it was just a work a day average championship player nothing special john robertson who who, who became a, a star in the, of the kind of premier league the first division and within a couple of years was struggling to get in the forest team at times and and i was the same age as these guys and this was an era when you did go out for a lager with them afterwards you know and yeah. um, and there wasn't there was nobody taking selfies and selling them to mail online. Um, so I was, I was best mates with these guys. Tra I traveled with them um, on the team coach, uh, took to away games, stayed in the hotels and stuff. Wow. I was part of the, part of the team. Weirdly, I, I moved after 18 months to Merseyside, just as Liverpool had won their first European cup in 1977. And the Liverpool team, that was Dalgleish and Sunis and Hansen and Clements, you know, absolute icons of the game. We traveled with them. We traveled on wow. the team coach with those guys, staying there. again. I was the same age as them. You know, I went out for a, a drink with them afterwards, uh, tried to pick up the girls they said no to. Um, <laughs> you know, that was that was my start. <laughs> it was all a scandal. It's all in the book. Um, um, but that was that was the era I grew up in. And I'm not saying it was better than today because it wasn't. I mean, anything that you can measure in the world, really, in terms of um sporting endeavor and competition you know sprinters get mm. faster jumpers jump higher and long and further so football must be better today but it was different back then and and because um there wasn't the distance between football and its media which there is today because we were part of the team because we were totally trusted because there weren't selfies and there weren't there wasn't Twitter and you could, there was no instant reporting yeah. of anything that anybody did wrong. There was always a chance to cover it up before the, the sun yeah. or the people got a hold of it. It was just um, a little bit more raw. And uh, I guess looking back without being too nostalgic, it was a bit more fun. And that, that, I mean, I've got great contacts in, in football today. Gareth was at our wedding, you know, he's, he's one of my best friends in football, but actually I'm old enough to be the grandfather of most of the players in this squad. So mm -hmm. even though I know some of them, I don't have the connection that of I course. do that I did back then with with 21, 22, 23 year old guys who played football. Yeah, of course, that's really interesting. Um, I want to fast forward a little bit um, just to sort of get get started um, on your uh, career. Um, so fast forward about twenty odd years. Um, I want to speak about your first season as the ITV senior commentator, which was the 98-99 season. Um, in particular, I want to uh, talk about that um, amazing night in Barcelona. Um, do you look back at that night with everything that happened as a real pivotal moment in your career? It was far, far and away the most important night of my career um, because it was the end, the conclusion of my first season um succeeding an absolute legend in my business a guy called brian moore something Brian moore, yeah. anymore um but i mean the, there is nobody not even i don't know martin tyler is that the, the, if you like the, the same level of stature that brian moore and john watson and barry davis had there's a lot less football on tv back then so if if there was a, a major game being broadcast 
almost certainly one of those three guys would be commentating. Today, I mean, there are so many of us. Um, I get stick on Twitter for games I'm not at, you know. <laughs> People, I guess, just sound a bit like me and they oh, bloody Clive again. I've never worked for BT Sport. I'm still getting, you know, stick for something I've said. So um, the, these were icons and I was following an icon and a wonderful man, Brian Moore. Um, so, I, I mean, they took a punt with me, uh, ITV, and I'll, I'll be forever grateful um, to them for that. Um, but I think if I'd screwed up that night in front of 20 million people, you know, if, if I'd shouted the wrong name, if I'd shouted uh, Cole when it was Solskjaer or something, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation now. Um, I think that was, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think getting that match yeah. right in front of such a big audience. Uh, it was such a big, I mean, you have to remember that no English club had won the Champions League um, for was it 15 years, something like that, 15 years during which we'd been kicked out of Europe in the wake of the Heisel Stadium disaster, which, you know, I was at, I was counting dead bodies that night in in, in Brussels. Um, and it was also that era when we just always lost to the Germans, you know, we yeah. usually on penalties, but their Germans always beat us. So for a club side to, to beat, I mean, half the German national team and to beat them so dramatically, and in many ways, the most vivid image of that night is the look on the faces of the Bayern fans at the end. It was look, they honestly look as if they'd seen some kind of natural disaster. I mean, yeah. there's total shock. And I think there was a certain amount of shock in the English game. And even though football had become very tribal by then as it is today and there were lots of abus watching that night i've always believed that for one night only even the most entrenched liverpool man city west ham leeds fan thought oh, on you go you've had your night in fairness the way you've done it you won all three yeah. and you've done it like your way um we'll give you dogs abuse when you come to our place in august but <laughs> go on on you go and and so all of those kind of overblown um that rhetoric of my commentary that night w was sort of not as misplaced as maybe it would be today i'm not sure you could do that today all that stuff about um you know name on the trophy reach the promised land it was all a bit yeah all a bit Peter Drury, isn't it? I, mean, you know, it's, <laughs> I don't really do that anymore, yeah. uh, which is fine. I mean, we're, we're all a matter of opinion, we're all a matter of taste. But I, I think at that time, I, I kind of got away with it that night and I got it right. And uh, yeah. I got the scorers right and the score right. Uh, I got the first goal totally wrong. Um, I mean, two minutes from the end of my first ever Champions League final. Actually, it wasn't. It was my second Champions League final live, but the first one involving an English club. I was thinking to myself, there's been one bloody goal in this game and I've got it wrong. There was a free kick from Basler. Basler, yeah. And I blame Peter Schmeichel because if you were really to push me, it was who was the outstanding individual in that Manchester United team? Um, yeah, given that Roy didn't play, Willis and Beckham, Giggs, etc. But actually, you could argue that there were better midfield players in the world at that time. You couldn't argue that there was a better goalkeeper. Schmeichel mm. was the best goalkeeper. And so when this free kick flies past him and he doesn't move, just something in my brains, and I still have a go at him over it today. It's no, bloody moved, you know. He made an absolute idiot out of me. I said deflected <laughs> and in. And it wasn't when I saw the replay, it just went straight past him. So there you go. I was two minutes and away from Solskjaer and Sheringham and all that nonsense. And uh, my first big final. And I, I don't think they'd have sacked me, but actually I got the only goal wrong. <laughs>
Manchester United score. They always score. The big goal is coming up. Peter Schmeichel is forward. Danny scored another in Europe. He's got one in Europe already. Beckham. In towards Schmeichel. It's come for Dwight York. Clear. Gates with a shot. Sheridan! Teddy Sheringham with 30 seconds of added time play has equalised for Manchester United. They are still in the European Cup. I've read somewhere that uh, when Sheringham scores and you, you know, when you go Sheringham, that you you looked over and saw Ron Atkinson with his microphone and you almost moved over to him to say, as if to say, do not say anything. How How instinctual is that? And did you did you have that planned, or is that just a commentator's instinct? And why did you want there to be that silence before you know you you, you next spoke? Well, um, firstly, talking about Ron is kind of difficult now um, because um, five years later he was sacked for a, a, an awful um, a, abomination of a racial comment, mm. um, and I, I actually in the chapter. I, there's a whole chapter devoted to my views on racism in football and, and kind of based on that experience of sitting next to somebody who said the N-word, not live on air, but it was heard on, in, on foreign networks and so on and so forth. So, uh, but Ron was a really, it was a really, really, I mean, part of that chapter is um, the fact that Ron was very, very popular at the time, very well respected. He was a successful manager. Um, but very popular. He was very much the the, the kind of um, the guy at the bar. You know, it was it was the guy that everybody in Britain could identify with. Everybody was comfortable with, which made the fact that he turned out to be capable of such an awful racist comment all the more difficult and uncomfortable for us as a nation, really, because we loved this guy and I loved him. And I, and you know, we all have friends who make mistakes to do things, and that doesn't mean the end of the friendship. Um, and, but Ron was very, very good to me, and, and I trusted him sitting alongside me. But I had somebody in my life by then who was having a bigger influence on my career, another commentator. My mentor was a boxing commentator uh, called Reg Gutteridge, who sadly is not with us either anymore, but well worth Googling and listening to Reg at his very best if you want to be a commentator. Um, and he taught me so much about communication, really, rather than commentary. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a question of... Um, commentators talk too much and there's nothing wrong with the silence. It, for him, he always used to say the silences are not rests, they're thinking time. And in in that seven or eight seconds where I didn't say anything, after each of the two goals, I'm thinking about what this is. And Reg always used to say, what you need to be doing is trying to capture tomorrow morning's tabloid banner headline. What 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 is the significance of what we've just seen? We know what we've just seen. You've shouted out the name. You've got it right. We know the score. So we now need something else, something better. And this may be the best. Well, I, 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 it would be to get a top 10 of the best advice I got from Reg. But this moment deserves better than, oh, amazing, incredible, oh, yeah. unbelievable. It deserves something, uh, to, which will be because you will be part of that moment forever and a day. If, you, if you, know, you, you, you deliver something which is... On, on the money, which captures that, somehow captures that moment. So it was thinking time, really. 
and the and the natural instinct is to go, you know, crazy. Yeah. And Ron, that's all Ron would have said. So, and I, I, I did put a hand across him. And when you've got, uh, it's different in an empty stadium, I think, which we've had for the last two years. You kind of got to fill the gaps a little bit because, but but when you've got that natural soundtrack, that natural accompaniment of people going crazy, and people at home are going crazy, they're not bloody listening to you at that moment. You know, they're they're either throwing something at the TV if they're a Leeds fan, or jumping around the room if they're a Manchester United fan. <laughs> so actually, you've got a bit of a free pass there for a few seconds, and it is thinking time. And mm. Uh, when when Cheringham equalised, for some reason I said name on the trophy, which just sort of captured the whole path, the crazy story of Manchester United's route to the treble, you know, staring at defeat in the FA Cup semi-final, uh, one down in the title decider, um, uh, two down in no time in Turin, um, but somehow kept coming back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that was the, the story again, that somehow their name had been carved on this trophy two or three months earlier. Um, and then, yeah, Solskjaer has won it. I mean, it, which actually breaks the cardinal rule of commentary because if Bayern go down the other end and equalise and it goes to extra time and penalties and they win, which they would have won the shootout because they're German, um, then, you know, an effigy of me would have been hanging from the Armdale <laughs> centre that night. It would have been my fault that Manchester United had lost. Um, but did that yeah, did that cross I, your I mind? Got away with it. <laughs> did that cross your mind when you said in that moment and Shosar? No, because it, it, it you've only got to look at those faces. Sammy Kufo, the Bayern centre back, yeah. just collapsed. He chucked they the knew, medal, didn't he? They knew it had gone. It, it, yeah. it, I mean, Mateus, the captain, the only thing he never won in football was the Champions League. He came off basically to wipe his, get his hands clean, ready to go and get the trophy. Basler, who'd scored that goal, the only goal, the one nil goal the undeflected goal had come off, giving it the old, come on, come on, come on. You know, we've won this now. And they conducting the crowd. So yeah. And these were two substitutes, you know, these were two guys that had been thrown and thrown on there, but I, I'll say this, Matt, um, if you ever watch that goal, and there'll be people um, watching and listening too young to even care about 1999, but actually it wasn't fate. It wasn't, I don't believe I'm not a religious person person i don't believe in destiny that winning goal was a set piece taken by the best set piece taker in the world david beckham connecting with the best near post header of a ball in the world teddy sheringham and connecting then again with probably the best goal scoring substitute in the world and it comes to him at an awkward height and and somehow he's got to improvise a finish just it is actually three wonderful pieces of technique all yeah, in yeah. the space of a second and a half. So it's not, it, it isn't a fairy story. It, it, it is actually a reward for talent. And, and of course, oh, talent right. means training. So it is actually, when you look at it, just one of the great set-piece goals of all time. That's very true, actually. You know, I've, 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 never, I've never thought of it like that at all. Look at the equalising goal and Terry Venables, who was, is one of the best pundits I've I've ever known. Terry was, he's still with us, but he isn't quite what he was. Um, Having (laughs) breakfast with Terry in a hotel during a tournament was just the most exhausting experience. Terry was a real salt and pepper pop coach. So when you sat down at breakfast with him, uh, immediately your knife would disappear down the side of the table to engage Cafu coming forward down the earth. He was always kind of planning a football match. 
and explaining to me who'd never played the game to any level. And you look at Teddy Sheringham uh, when he scores the equaliser and, and the corner goes out, it's half cleared. Giggs then hits, uh, um, and remember Schmeichel's in the, the, mid, the mix, so there's absolute mayhem in the penalty area. Uh, Giggs mishits a shot in. And everybody had turned to face Ryan Giggs because he had the shooting chance. Everybody except one. Teddy Sheringham had half turned. And so when Giggs's mishit shot comes to him, he does not have his back to goal. Everybody else is facing Giggs. Sheringham is half arm. He's half side arm. And so even though he doesn't hit it very well, it can help it on its way. Yeah. That's And Terry Venable spotted that two minutes after the game. And I thought, wow. You know, you talk about, you see football tactics. And even today, we see that you know, they're really great analysts, you know, Karen and Nev and so on, moving stuff around. But actually, in that moment, uh, that, 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 uh, you know, that, that kind of observation of what yeah, yeah. made Sheringham just the man for that moment, the fact that he was side on. If he'd, if he'd had his back to go, all he could have done was lay it back to somebody. But he, he wasn't, he wasn't, he was side on, he could that, score. Yeah, that striker's, that striker's instinct. Um, Manchester United legend for sure. Um, let's move on then. I want to, I want to touch on, um, it was a video you posted on social media last year announcing that you had been replaced as the uh, lead commentator for ITV, which was uh, a massive shock for, for me, for all of us football fans and for many others. Um, you know, for, for me personally, and I'm sure I speak on behalf of the majority of football fans in the UK, you are the voice the voice of England, the voice of our country in, in major tournaments. And it just it's that old saying for me personally, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. Um, why Why did the change happen? When were you told? Um, was it a shock? And, and do you think the decision has made any difference at all in terms of what ITV, ITV's reasoning for it was? I don't know. Yes, and I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't see it coming. Um Maybe I, I should have done. I'm 67 years of age now. Um, uh, I if, if the European finals had happened in 2020, as obviously they were scheduled to do, I had my programme of games that I was going to commentate on. ITV and BBC had made their choices. Uh, and obviously ITV had got some England games and some big first-choice games. And I actually had the programme that, Clearly, we were going to travel around Europe then um, uh, to all, all of the matches. So um, the tournament was postponed for obvious reasons. Um, my contract was up in uh, the start of the June. And so when the Zoom call was fixed with my two immediate bosses, both of whom I regard as friends and both of whom I have a high regard for in terms of their editorial judgment, I, I kind of, I didn't quite know what, what the offer would be but I assumed that well you know let's get you to next summer when the tournament happens and we'll do the same again and and um the call lasted about 10-12 seconds really um they told me that they were replacing me with Sam Matterface and um I was very upset uh, not least because I was looking into the face of two people I really knew mm. and I didn't I hadn't seen it coming so um deep breath and and deal with it um I am now, for the first time, actually, in, in my entire long adult life, um, dealing with no paycheck coming in every month, which I'd had really, you know, from the moment I'd walked through the doors of Radio Trent 
all those millions of years earlier. So I, I was a freelance and I had to sort of get my head around that. Uh, had to sort of deal with the, the fallout. But the reason for the video, which is what you referred to, which went viral and had, you know, however many hits, millions of hits, was, um, and I suppose it's a compliment, I I was carded to commentate on Soccer Aid, which I've always done um, for ITV, um, which we will we'll do for nothing and so on. And I, I've become, a, felt a part of um, really having been involved with UNICEF from the, yeah. the outset of, of you know Robbie Williams and Jonathan Wilkes's crazy idea, um, and I thought it was important to let the producer of, so- of Soccer Aid know that come August, when the tournament was scheduled to appear on ITV, that I wouldn't be ITV's lead commentator, and I felt he might come under some pressure from ITV to replace me. So I wanted to kind of preempt it with it, and I hadn't told many people at that time. ITV was still trying to put an announcement together, um, and. He said, "Well, um, I'll, I'll speak to UNICEF, but we want you to do it. You know, you're you're the soccer aid commentator." I said, "Well, fine, as long as you're nice, I'd love to do it." Mm. And then the next day, he came back to me, and he said, um, "We do want you to do it, but I need to ask you something, Clive." And I said, "What?" And he said, "Have you done anything?" I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "Have you done anything I'm going to read about?" <laughs> I said, "No." <laughs> and he said, "Are you okay?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm upset." He said, "No, but I mean." So I I guess it had come as a surprise to, to him and he had jumped to the conclusion that either I was terminally ill or that I, you know, run off with the ITV boss's wife or something, you know, it's like that, or, or I'd swindled a load of money out of a children's idea. You know, that, that was kind of what I was looking at. Yeah. And so the, the video was, and ITV were dragging their feet um, as to how they wanted to announce it, that they wanted me to say that I was standing down, and when I wasn't, um, so and, and eventually, you know, they, they we, we agreed on a, a wording for a, um, and, and I've stayed with them, and I will, you know, continue to work as as Sam's number two for as long as they need me. Um, and Sam's a really capable um, radio and TV commentator, so you know, we're all a matter of opinion. I mean, the decision itself is the decision. That's fine. If people have got their opinions, but that, that's cool. But what I couldn't afford was for people to jump to the conclusion um, that they were going to read something terrible about me. or uh, and, and so that's why I did the video. And it, I guess it, it was kind of scripted in my mind, but I didn't spend days over it. I spent half an hour thinking what I wanted to say. And we sat down at the kitchen table and my wife turned on the phone and put it on Twitter and there you go. That's, but listen, you know, I, I, I said, I accept the decision. Life goes on. It's not the biggest thing. People are, are dealing with a killer disease at the moment. There's the bigger things happening in the world, but just in case you're wondering, um, I am surprised. I'm not happy about it. Uh, and I've not done anything. And that's all the video was really. Yeah. Did you have um, this summer, obviously with the, when the Euros was on, there must've been a, there must've been a void there for you. Yeah. <laughs> My my mate is the manager of England. Yeah, and it would have been special to experience it. He's taken us very close to winning the first major trophy of most of the people, well, the, the lifetime of nearly everybody watching this right now. And I'm messaging, you know, with Gareth and I are WhatsApping each other every other day. Um, so it, yeah, it, and I still think I can do the job. And mm. So, uh, and yeah, you know, we got some pretty good feedback. They. They team me up with Koisty, who Ali McCoist, who I've known 
uh, for a hundred years and um, uh, who I got on brilliantly with. Um, He's and I great. think that probably came over, you know, the, we're, and we weren't at the, the, the stadium. We were um, in a studio in Maidstone where I was, I was walking into every day to, uh, it, it, to smile and nod at the guy who got rid of me, um, <laughs> which is all a bit weird. Um, but yeah, it, it really doesn't, I'm not, um, I'm very, um, I'm very serious about my job. Um, I'm very lucky to have it. And if anybody watching has ever been in an audience at a, a university where I've been asked to come and speak to media students, they'll know that, um, they probably thought I, you know, that, that some entertainer was coming in uh, and actually they just get the relief teacher because I am, I am, I'm quite earnest about communication and what, what's important about it and what what young aspiring communicators need to learn in my opinion you know and what mm. they need to think about certainly in my opinion so I am serious about my job very serious about my job I don't suffer fools very gladly when I'm on an outside broadcast because we're part of the big team and we're all very um, interdependent yeah but it is we don't say I mean you know there, we've, we've, we've had emphasis in the last two years of the jobs that are really important, even that, you know, even lorry drivers achieve more than I do, really. I mean, I'm just a, a bit of fluff which goes around a football match. I'm not, okay, it's nice if you're part of a big occasion, um, but it, it it isn't that important. In, in And I'm just really lucky to get paid reasonably well to to do it. So I'm not, you know, I, I don't have a big chip on my shoulder about the decisions. Um, I've had rejections before and I've had, perhaps promotions when they come as a bit of a surprise to me. That's the nature of, of, of our job. But I did want to make it absolutely clear that I wasn't standing down and uh, that there was nothing wrong with me. I, was, I still felt I could still do this job. So you did put up a fight when they, when they said it? No, not really. I mean, I, so people, you, you, the first question you asked is, why did they do it? I've never asked. That, it doesn't make any difference, really. I, I, I was told something about, uh, all organisations need to refresh from time to time, to which my reply was, I refresh every day. Every day I look at the, the way that media is now created and consumed changes by the day. The, 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 the content and the platforms change by the day. And, um, you know, I, I may be of a generation where there are a lot of people of my age who think that nothing good has happened in the world since 1985. I am not one of them. Mm. I've got uh, four kids in their late mid to late twenties now. And I, they're amongst my best friends in the world. And, um, you know, I've got to be able to communicate with them. So, I mean, I, 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 I don't, I, I don't have a problem with the puzzle of trying to commentate on a football match where the youngest viewer is, two and the oldest viewer is 102 that is the challenge of yeah. mass communication and i do think that i do think that there is and i'm going to be careful because I, i'll sound like some tired old um broken man and i'm not I'm, I'm very very i've never been happier in my life really never ever been happier in my life and i like the 21st century very much indeed what the 21st century is going to be careful of is that it stops asking itself the questions that Reg Guttridge asked of me. Who is your audience? Who are you broadcasting to? What are you trying to add to their appreciation and enjoyment of a football match, essentially of a football match? That is your job. You know, it is actually a, a, almost um, 
an understated, humble job. You're, you're only the accompaniment. You're not the football match. Yeah. So what are you trying to add and who you're speaking to? And the population's growing older. Mm. You, and people under the age of 30 really don't listen to a lot of radio or even watch television in a conventional, established way. They consume their content differently. So why are you trying to adapt established decades old platforms, you know, Five Live and so on and so forth to a younger audience? They don't want that. That's fine. They'll, they'll dip in and out. They, you know, they're bright and savvy. They know where to find it. If they need that radio commentary, which is exclusive on Five Live, they'll find it. But they don't need it dressing up with, you know, one of their favorite rap artists suddenly becoming a football pundit. That's no, they love that artist for what he or she does musically. They actually they want football experts. Why are Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher so massive? Because they played the game to a really, really high level. They think about the game, and more importantly, they think about communication. Mm. They think about how to communicate what they know to people who've never been there before. That is the job of the pundit. They are great pundits because they do that. Their age is unimportant. The color of their skin is unimportant. Their gender is unimportant, really. Okay, I get the whole thing about it's it, aspirationally, it's important to see somebody who looks like me getting on in a particular profession. I totally get that and I applaud it. Most of the greatest things that have happened in the world come as a result of fusion of some kind, some mixing of, of, of different ingredients, diversity, that is diversity, yeah. but it happens organically, it happens naturally. If you are, if you wanna to listen to, for instance, some great Michael Jackson music, what's the best thing about it? A apart from his talent, the production, the producer was white. The guy that he worked with on all of that soul music was a white guy it, and, and they just got on together and they, you know, Rod Templeton and Michael Jackson just got on. It didn't matter, actually. That wasn't the reason that the music's so great. But when you look at it, it gives you a, a little bit of an understanding, a little bit of depth as to why it was different, because mm. it was a mix. So mixes are great, but please, not this kind of Noah's Ark diversity, what I call Noah's Ark diversity. We need two of those, two of those, and two of those. That, that's not how it works. That's not how diversity works. Yeah. It's organic. It's natural. It's wonderful. Old and young, you know, it, yeah. that's, it, it, it works. It works. It's, it's the relationship you'd have with your dad or a, a, an uncle or aunt. It's, it, it's, you know, don't try to tell me that my kids are, are completely disinterested in the whole backstory to the world in which they live in now. I mean, the, they they love they love to get some some history some his, historical context on the planet that they live in li, live on now and it mm -hmm. actually gives them a wider view and appreciation. I mean, the, I, my children have been wonderful with elderly parents with my father and as you know in in his later years with my ex wife's mother in her later years. They haven't done that out of some kind of duty. They've done it out of love. And the, and the time they spent with people in their 70s, 80s and 90s will be some of the most valuable time in their life. So don't take that off our natural forms of communication. Give us something of everything. Don't yeah. put the old people out with the bins. <laughs> We've still got something to add, you know. We can still give you something. 
not everything but something lovely stuff i've just got um a couple of questions uh that i've, that I've picked out from listeners who have tweeted us yesterday um we're going to go for the first one from dale he says as an actor i don't really like watching myself back on screen do you listen to your commentary after games or is it something you tend to shy away from dale do it you've got to be your own biggest critic you've got to be your own most constructive critic um nobody knows better than you what you are trying to convey in any particular performance so nobody can judge better than you whether you nailed it or not and sometimes when you watch back a performance the next day it stinks give it another month and have a look at it again and then i think you'll you you'll get a little bit more um reflective um a little bit you'll you'll have a, a clearer idea and a judgment and hopefully you'll see your progress and and that's yeah the answer to, to your question is i listen back to just about everything i do um, i mean if i do a talk sport commentary um which i do a few of now yeah i record it on my sky plus and i'm sitting there looking at a blank screen the wife comes in what are you doing what are you watching I said, i'm just listening to myself back vain <laughs> bug i said no i'm not I'm, i actually don't like this very much I'm trying to learn from it, you know, and that's... <laughs> Still now, after all these years. Absolutely. Yeah. And and because, partly because, the, you know, the mediums are changing and the content's mm. changing and the demands are changing. And, and and the same will be true for you, Dale. You know, the the performance that you gave last year, would, you know, may it may be a different interpretation that you can put on it today, which is more relevant. To, I mean, crikey. I, I promise you, I may be 100 years old, but the last two years have been the craziest two years I've ever spent on the planet. But it, it, this Earth isn't usually like this, you know? It's really not. Yeah. I mean, this this has been a shock to all of our systems, and it should be reflected in the way we perform in, in creative arts or communicative arts. Of course it should. Nice. Um, next question from Blaine. He says, if you had to go for a drink with one current Premier League footballer, who would it be? I know. <laughs> I don't think they drink any of them, do they? <laughs> I've always, I, 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 uh, actually, in the book, um, I do say um, that if, you know, that kind of fictional supper party or whatever, I mean, I'm not talking about like Michelin star now, I'm talking about just sitting, yeah, sitting down table. with three mates for a plate mm. or something and having a, having a bottle of wine. Um, I would go um, McCoyst. O'Neill and Townsend put the world to rights. <laughs> they put me to rights. <laughs> um, James has said, "This is the last question." Uh, James has said, "What do you think of the English Premier League refereeing compared to UEFA FIFA competitions?" Well, I think what you're probably asking me is, "What do I think of Premier League refereeing compared to what we saw at Euro?" It's Euro 2021 to me, sorry. Yeah. It happened in 2021. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, in 100 years' time, people are going to like, oh, why did they call it Euro 2020? I, it's Euro 2021. Um, it's now official. Okay, we've all agreed on that. Okay, that's when it happened. Yeah, the Ryder Cup, it was 2021. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, and they were the best referees from all of those countries. Mm. Uh, so that's, and also there was a slightly different emphasis which I think has now been incorporated into the the Premier League. I I, I usually get on pretty well with referees. We're, we're kind of they're probably the other people in in the business who were never good enough to 
<laughs> bloody footballers, you know. And we're all <clears throat> we're all kind of slightly anal about what we do. You know, we we we've got all our information, and everything. And they've got all their laws. Nobody, no manager, no player, no pundit knows the laws better than the, the referees. We know that. I mean, they they do know the laws. They make mistakes, and VARs make mistakes, but. You you may have worked out that so did commentators and so did managers and so did players. Yeah, um, they probably make a smaller percentage of mistakes, but a lot of the criticism of them comes from people who don't understand the laws and they do not write the laws; they apply the laws <clears throat> as they are. And I think a lot of the problems that we've seen, particularly with handball, um, have been with the, the the actual framing of the law itself. They they've actually tried. Um, to define handball more and more precisely with a number of new laws where actually accidental or, or not was all that was required, in, which is how the law was 10 years ago. So yeah. in trying to be more scientific in providing more consistency, they've made, they've made a, a labyrinth that nobody quite understands other than the referees. So... I, I I think if you watch a lot of Serie A or if you watch a lot of Bundesliga, uh, watch a lot of La Liga, you'd see crap referees too. Yeah, yeah, you just got to branch out. Um, so, Clive, lastly, what we always do on uh, to end it, um, whether you're an actor, a broadcaster, a DJ, an author, we always finish with this one question: If you could play, so get your acting get your acting shoes on now, Clive. You're, you're going to be an actor for the next couple of minutes. If you could play a footballer past or present in a biopic of their life who would you play and why i don't know <laughs> um i a, a lot of footballers um are daft when they're 22 like most <clears throat> men and quite a lot of women are and they become really interesting when they can't run anymore <laughs> when they have to use their heads a little bit more to, in, in order to extend their careers by three, four, five years. And they become more interesting to interview and to know um, when they've got to think about the games. It's funny, having been on team coaches um, a million years ago, all the daft lads at the back playing cards or whatever. And actually somewhere down the front, chatting away to the coach driver is some old pro who doesn't want to be back there anymore. And that's when you kind of find yourself. And and seriously, a lot of the issues that have faced um, modern footballers have come in retirement. You know, mm. they've come in the, in the years um, when the, when the lights go out, um, you know, when they have to deal, uh, perhaps their marriages are, are slight, feel slightly differently. Certainly their, the amount of attention that they're giving the temptation because they will have some spare money um, that they're you know, gambling and drinking and so on provide so i think I, I probably would be drawn to somebody who who'd been through you, you know all of those trials and tests of paul Merson or somebody who um you know has, has had to face up to all those human frailties I've, I've known some wonderful people um ray clements and sir bobby robson who i was close to both of them have fought cancer for decades i, I mean it just kept coming back and they the, the bravery and competitiveness that they showed in their playing and management was very evident. Um, and their positive thinking, they were just delights to be around even when they were in pain and even when they were having to face up to the reality of what this mm. fucking disease was doing to them. 
Um, so they, they would be the inspirational people that I've met in football. Then I've, I've been fortunate enough, and you read in the book, that to be around the likes of Shankly and <clears throat> Clough and Ferguson, the great orators, the people with presence and charisma who just commanded the room whenever they were in there. And they, you know, they, they would be fascinating. Um, they would be fascinating subjects. But I think in the environment that we're all living at the moment, where we are, you know, probably becoming more and more conscious of of the temptations and frailty of, of human nature, all of the all of the issues which are kind of stuffed under the umbrella um, of mental health, then um, yeah, somebody somebody like Merce, who's mm. um, who, who's been right up there and has been somewhere down below that I can't envisage, and is making his way back up. I think that would be the most interesting um, subject. You mentioned Ray Clements. He uh, he did a stint at my beloved Barnet FC. As 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 I spent the last day of his life with him, and um, really? I've never met anybody quite like. I shouldn't have been. It was in lockdown, and um, he um, his wife um, phoned on a Friday evening. Um, and my wife uh, knows Ray and V really well too, and he's just the most extraordinary man. And um, he actually um, wanted to ask me a couple of things um, to do. And I said, no, you're not, <laughs> I'm not having this, you know. And um, we put the phone down and, and uh, both cried our eyes out. And um, next morning we woke up and just said, oh no, fuck it, we're gonna see him. It's illegal, but we're gonna go and see him. Yeah. And we spent the whole day with him and his family, uh, with uh, Steve and a couple of the other people who had the phone call <laughs> decided the same, no, no, we're coming to see you. And when we left the house that Saturday evening, not too far from Barnet, funny enough, up in North London, uh, Hertfordshire, um, I just said, I'll, I'll, "Listen, we'll be back next week." You know, blow the. I, I, I do take the regulations very, very seriously, and 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 I have uh, um, I have managed to avoid this damn disease so far um, by doing the right things. But you know, there are certain exceptions that I felt as if I needed to make, and um, that was a Saturday night. We walked out of the house about half past seven, with big smiles on our faces, and he had a big smile on his face. I got a phone call at, uh, about midday on the Sunday from Stephen saying he's gone. Just fell asleep. So there you go. Bless Great him. man. Great man. God rest his soul. Um, I, think that's a, I think that's a lovely way to, to finish. Clive, it's been an absolute honour, a privilege to uh, have you on and chat with you. Thank you very much. I hope you, uh, hope you enjoyed that. I did. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Hello, Clive. Hello, mate. Hello, mate. You're right. Yeah, I'm all right, mate. <laughs>